The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is a great honor to introduce my guest, Mr. David Vetter. He's an organic farmer and owner of Grain Place Foods near Marquette, Nebraska. The Vetters are among the first in their region to be certified organic farmers, and David's father is really the one who started all of this. He began to adopt organic farming methods in the early 50s when he began to question the science and ethics of the emerging agricultural technologies of the late 40s and early 50s. Sixty years later, their farm has grown into a tremendous family business and regional employer that helps steward other local farms in their journey toward organic production. Mr. Vetter is the recipient of many awards recognizing his land stewardship, including Farmer of the Year Award from the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, and in September, the Rodale Institute awarded his work with an Organic Pioneer Award. Mr. Vetter holds a bachelor's degree in agronomy, soil science from the University of Nebraska, and a master of divinity degree from United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. For Mr. Vetter, Organic sustainable farming methods are an application of both biological and theological principles. And in fact, when you go to visit Grain Place Foods, you'll see their famous tagline, which says, How your food is produced does matter. Welcome, Mr. Vetter. Thank you. You know, I had the great honor of touring your farm this summer. And what I witnessed was really a mix of art and science and perseverance and respect for the land, a true dedication to excellence. But I'm curious to know, what do you want our listeners to know about your farm? I guess one of the things I want people to be aware of up front is that as far as our family is concerned, it's a big experiment on how do we develop a management system that is self-renewing and resilient within its own right, and so we've struggled with various approaches to making the farm work without being dependent on a lot of outside inputs, mm-hmm. and uh, which has uh, given us room to make a lot of mistakes, uh, but we've also learned a lot. Absolutely. Yes, I know, and when we were visiting, it seemed as if you were using the scientific method and some really good engineering skills to fix things that go wrong in the day of a life of a farmer, such as your irrigation system, for example? Well, some of our systems are getting kind of old, so they're always uh, needing repair and extra maintenance. And uh, we've tried to do a number of things that were, well, I guess when we started ahead of the curve, you might say, uh, we started experimenting with subsurface drip irrigation systems uh, of uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And... I think we uh, helped pay the tuition for a lot of system installers and, and uh, engineers because of the mistakes that we see that happened in that early system design that hopefully people aren't making anymore. Yeah. So what are your greatest challenges today on the farm? Well, our biggest challenge today on the farm, I think, is is the, the transition to the next generation. With no immediate family members, we're struggling with ways to make transition 
and still keep that long-term vision intact. We've only been really working at this intensely for 40 years, and that's not very long. And so we kind of feel it's important to try and carry that on for another 40 or more uh, if we're really going to learn something from what we've already done. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that you have created a foundation now that's going to serve as an educational resource for individuals who want to continue on in the tradition of truly stewarding the land. The foundation is is an approach that we took to try to carry on that uh, broader long-term vision because we could build that into the function and the purpose of the foundation and hopefully the uh, governing uh, board in the the next 40 years can uh, stay pretty much true to that and figure out how to make it work. One of the requirements that we put on it is that the farm operation still has to be able to support a farm family in in the context of doing this experimentation. So unless you can stay true to that long-term goal, it's sometimes you have to take a few steps backwards and, and uh, get things straightened out again before you can move forward. And sometimes it's difficult to move forward again when you've found a little niche that's working real well short-term but it doesn't move you toward the longer-term goal. Right, which is really what sustainability is all about. Yeah, I once told a group of farmers in the early 80s that they ought to be thinking about the implications of their management decisions 100 years down the road. and got a lot of strange responses to that comment. But. Yeah. yeah, well, I think one of the reasons why you've been so successful is because of your long-term thinking, and probably you learned a lot from your father, who I know recently passed, and I'm, I'm so sorry about that. But I was curious about your dad and if you had any conversations with him. You know, when he was really going up against this push to modernize, I wonder what his life was like in terms of conversations at the coffee shop where your dad was one who said, no, I'm not going with what seems to be these new modern agricultural technologies. I want to adopt organic farming methods. How did he navigate that conversation? You know, conversations like that were frequent. We're related to half the town here, not so much today as we were 40 years ago. And at family get-togethers, whenever Dad walked in the room or Dad and I walked into the room, conversation was agriculture, but it stopped the minute we walked in and never picked up again. So that's one of the pieces that you always kind of had to deal with. But there were always opportunities to visit with people one-on-one, and, and you always take them when they come along and and uh, do it one piece at a time. Dad early on served on the county uh, extension board, and and, uh, and I ended up serving a term there as well here a few years ago. And so it's changing gradually and, and uh, more conversation about it. We got some good coverage in the local newspaper with uh, our uh, farm tour event this year and probably some uh, some of the best we've seen in terms of local newspapers a year ago at our farm tour event. But several years ago, you have special invitations to the publisher and, and other folks to come and nobody local would show up. Most of the people who came to our farm tour were... 40 minutes to a couple, three hours or more away. Right. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that with increasing consumer demand and with increasing consumer awareness for the benefits of consuming organic food and now with the pressures of climate change and our understanding about how we farm influences not only the food on our plate, but how we're going to deal with agricultural challenges moving forward, 
I would think that the popularity of your methods of farming would be growing substantially. We are seeing a lot more requests for information, people to want, want to stop and visit or, or talk with, with us about the potential that they might have on their own farm. And from day one, when I came back to the farm, anybody that's wanted to talk, we've always carved out time. And we've had so many requests to work with different groups and sales groups and stuff, selling materials and inputs. And we've tried to avoid that because we were wanting to find a way to manage to move away from that. And we didn't want to endorse anything along that line. So we always tried to make time for anybody that wanted to talk or, or visit about it, no matter how remote uh, the possibility of something happening might be. Well, we should let our listeners know a little bit. We want to paint a picture for them about what your farm looks like if they were to come visit it. And I will say that it's as you're driving through Nebraska, this is from a non-farmer's perspective now, you see a lot of corn and soy and not a lot of biodiversity until you get to your farm. And then you see the tree buffers. You see signs that say organic farm, no spray. And suddenly when you go onto your farm, you hear wildlife. You hear birds. You hear and see insects. You see signs of life that are less on farms that tend to have monoculture methods of farming. And you have how many acres on your farm, Dave? We have about 274 acres total in the farming operation. We crop about 230-some acres of that in a cropping rotation. Then we have probably oh, close to 23 to 25 acres that's permanent pasture, and then a lot of it's in, in borders. We maintain undisturbed borders between our fields of which we have 18 different ones in a nine-year rotation, and we have undisturbed borders between each one. And uh, we, some of those we have trees and nut trees and shrubs planted in. Some of them we have are beginning to restore to uh, high-diversity native prairie seeds collected in our local region. Just looking for different, different habitats and different uh, uh, niches within the, the broader habitat for that diversity. Yeah. And... You know, the longer rotation with the, with the grazing of the grasses and stuff that we use in that rotation is something that I wish I'd started uh, many years earlier than we did. Why is that? Just because of the impact on the soil and, and the changes in our ability to absorb water when we get rain mm. and not have runoff when we see a lot of our neighbors having a lot of runoff and then water pooling in the fields, and that seldom happens here, mm. even with... Uh, three-inch rain within an hour or so, we we didn't have standing water. So we see that all around us, and so that's one of the things that we like. The negative impact, we're dependent on irrigation here, and when we're doing furrow irrigation, now we have a real hard time getting water to run through the field without soaking in too deep below the root zone. Interesting. don't like wasting water like that, and I'm trying to figure out how we're going to address that down the road. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up farming methods per se and the quality of your soil because one of the issues that always comes up whenever I'm having a conversation and advocating for organic methods is farmers will say, yeah, but no-till is the way to go. We prefer to use chemicals rather than tilling because we don't want to have erosion. Tell me about your experience and how you feel about tillage versus chemicals. 
you know, for me, the option obviously is tillage if and when I need to use it as opposed to using chemicals because I think they have a negative impact on the final objective of developing a, a whole and resilient uh, system. Uh, certainly, uh, no-till with chemicals is better than some of the more traditional stuff, but it, I think, comes up way short. And I guess one of the classic examples of that that I've observed over and over again, people that are pushing no-till, when we get a big rain, you know, all of the residue on the cover, because it's been killed with herbicides and everything, is, is in the road ditch and it's in the creek banks and it's plugging up the culverts, and and you still see the soil erosion underneath that cover. Hmm. On uh, less slopes and stuff like that, obviously you don't see those kinds of problems, but it's something I've observed over and over again. And even with our tillage, we see much less erosion in heavy rains like that than what I see in a lot of neighboring farms where they maintain a lot of residue on the surface with the use of herbicides. Yeah. I feel like that is an issue that really needs to be amplified the fact that you are not seeing erosion, even though you do till when you need to, because invariably that is the argument for using the herbicides. You know, obviously we don't have zero erosion. Anytime you disturb surface, you've got erosion problems. But I think generally a diverse biological system, biologically-based system, is more stable. And I think that there are so many things that we're not measuring as a result of the herbicide use that we really can't have a full-fledged conversation. For example, what's happening in the soil with microbes. The fact that you have such excellent water retention after a rain tells me that you've got really healthy soil. We hope so. We continue to try to find ways to improve that, but years of almost half of our Crop rotation is in, in perennial grasses and legumes. Mm-hmm. And so we are helping to build a lot of biomass within the cell profile as well as the, the residue on the surface that we incorporate on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. David Vetter. He is an organic farmer and owner of Grain Place Foods near Marquette, Nebraska. Well, Dave, I have to ask you about the situation with drift. I know you've got signs on your farm, you know, no spray zone. This is an organic farm. We don't want those chemical drifts. But I also know after touring your farm that you test every single grain. And I should let our listeners know, too, that your grain place food production facility is spotless. And you have a center where you test your grains so that they are not contaminated with either genetically engineered drift, genetic GMO drift, or herbicide drift. Talk to me about some of the challenges that you're dealing with now. Well, obviously, in any of those things, we can't escape some contamination because there's always so much of a background level that you can't get away from it. We're probably more concerned about the GMO drift and uh, because none of the strategies that we've looked at or evaluated really work to help minimize that. The last, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so, we've gotten really pretty good cooperation from our neighbors and commercial applicators of other pesticides, and 
rarely do we see anybody that applies anything within a mile or so of us if we're downwind. And so that's a huge, huge help from the community at large for what we're doing. Early on, we didn't get that, and we had some significant losses in early years. But now with some broader cooperation and there's more information available about where those problems are and and in terms of a database that states and state and other organizations now maintain about sensitive crops that they're trying to get commercial applicators to pay attention to. So with that happening, that has become less of a concern for us. Obviously, we monitor for that. We don't test as much for that as we used to. But if there are any signs of cross-contamination, then, then we do test. But the, the GMO stuff is really hard because you those indicators really aren't anything there to see until you test it. So that's become the big issue for us. We lost our first customer in 19, I believe it was either 98 or 99, because of GMO contamination. And who's responsible for that GMO contamination? I would assume from an outsider's view that the individual or the the industry or business that is responsible for the contamination would be paying you for your losses. You know, there's no way to know who that is. Uh, the only way you can really connect the material is with the patent holder, and obviously they've taken no responsibility for contaminating other people's work. Right. So the patent holders would be the the seed and chemical companies such as Monsanto, Syngenta. Is that right? Yes. Well, it's interesting that you bring this up because one of the things I know that is a concern after visiting your farm is this type of genetically engineered corn that's being used for ethanol production. And ironically, when I was leaving your farm, I saw a big billboard advertising Enogen corn. That's E-N-O-G-E-N. And it was developed by Syngenta for ethanol production. What is the problem with this particular GMO corn if it contaminates your food quality or food grade Um, grain? It it takes very little cross-contamination before it it ruins the crop for use in certain types of uh, milled corn product production. So it makes it difficult to make a chip or a tortilla or something like that without it falling apart because of the enzyme that, that it carries that's not normal in corn. And have there been discussions in the farming community? I can see this setting up a a difficult relationship with maybe some of your neighbors who are growing this kind of corn. Yeah. The first year that there was any production around, I had a conventional farmer call me. I wanted to know what he could do about that cross-contamination, and he was growing corn under contract to some food processors, and it was rejected because of the presence of antigen cross-contamination in there. So he lost his his premium food-grade market. Was he compensated? I I don't know. He never left me a phone number, and and, uh, he never called me back. I told him to give me a call if he let me know what happened because it would be some useful information for some other things that we we're considering as well. So, yeah, but well, I don't know. Yeah, it seems to me that there's a great risk here with regard to keeping the integrity of the food supply and not contaminating it even beyond the organic certification. 
I would agree. Then the risk is much greater in the broader use of uh, corn in the food supply base than than it is the, even the impact on organic production right now. Right. I was reading about Enogen corn. There was a piece on Ag Review. This was back in 2014 from a gentleman from Ohio State University talking about how there was a benefit with this type of corn for the ethanol production, but there was no mention about what might happen to a food producer. And one of the strategies that was mentioned in this brochure was, well, you know, we're going to require buffers. But I seem to remember a discussion on your farm about buffers that they really aren't adequate as they are recommended today. No, they're way short. I haven't seen seen one, and, and it's so unpredictable on what the environmental and, and the weather conditions are going to be that you know, the number of different strategies that have been recommended to us, and we've tried several different ones. We've never seen any of them succeed. So what does the future look like? Well, I'm, it's a little scary when, when, you, when you look at that if, you know, one of your principal crops is a food-grade corn, just with that being in the area. And it's all around us, uh, Syngenta's largest corn processing, uh, seed corn processing facility is like 15 miles away from us. So there's a lot of uh, that seed production going on uh, in the area here, and as well as a number of other companies that are maintained seed production in, in our media region. Yeah. Has there been any discussion about policy implications or a policy strategy to protect the farmers who are growing food? I haven't heard any. I'm not I'm not aware of any. It's like they don't want to talk about it mostly, I think. Yeah. You would think that would be a big big discussion point, but I haven't I haven't heard much. Now, we've had uh, an organic grower that we work with growing food grade corn for one of our customers and and there was a field of energy just across the fence from him, and we've done a lot of testing on his stuff, and, and we saw no evidence of, of, the, of those GMO traits in his corn when we did our testing. So, But you never know, and next year it could be totally different if we run into the same situation. Right. So, so far so good, but we need to, I think for those of us who value good food, I think we need to be talking to farmers and working together to protect the food that we deem to be the most nutritious. How do you think, Dave, what would you like consumers to do to help keep the quality of your food in the marketplace? Well, the most basic thing you can do to help keep it in the marketplace is to buy it. Right. That will encourage more growers to uh, to get involved, I think, in the end. And one of the things that we've struggled with is supply uh, from early on. I know we've gone through several periods in working with other farmers complaining about there was no market and that they didn't want more growers because they didn't need the competition. But what was really hard to get new farmers and existing farmers complaining about having a market was to understand that the reason they didn't have a market wasn't because there was too much. It was because there wasn't enough. If you're a food manufacturer, you can't afford to put a product on the market if you can't supply it for the full year round. Right. And uh, having ingredients and not having ingredients and not knowing uh, whether you've got a continuing supply of ingredients is, is 
is a really a tough management marketing problem. Right. Well, I know in talking to individuals who are working with food manufacturers, there is such a huge consumer demand for organic food for all the right reasons, but the supply, as you say, is way short. And so we're importing organic grains, which is crazy when we've got so many acres of corn and soy it would be nice if there was a policy incentive to shift some of that production to the kinds of high-quality food we need to eat. There are some programs that can help with that right now. There's some transitional labeling that should do that. and We're starting to see some some of the food processing companies looking at long-term contracts and agreeing to pay a small premium on the transitional product in exchange for a longer-term production contract on those same crops for X number of years once they're certified. So even uh, industry is starting to get involved in that process of trying to encourage farmers to uh, shift to an organic management program. Mm-hmm. That's really good news. So from the there, con- there are some USDA programs now that, that are supportive of that, but they don't get uh, much press and they seldom get much promotion or encouragement from our land-grant universities. So Where can our listeners go to learn more about these incentive programs or to be more involved to help support this kind of farming? Well, I think one of the things, if you want to see what's what's available through USDA, is just to visit their website about organic programs. Obviously, there's a certification program, but then there's conservation programs and there's risk management programs that are being developed and designed around an organic management system. And Still, you know, there's problems with that because there's one program says you should do this and the other program says if you do that, you don't qualify for this program and when they should be uh, supporting each other. Hmm. But that's beginning to change as we get into it. Uh, those problems are being identified and I, I believe that, uh, you know, in, in most cases, USDA is making a, making a good effort to try and address those uh, contradictory issues. Mm-hmm. I know there's going to be a film about you coming out. Uh, that's what I understand. <laughs> well, I believe it's called For a, a Better World. I think so. I don't, at least that's the working title at this point, as I understand it. Right. Well, we will be sure to let our listeners know how they can view this film because I think that 30 minutes with you in an interview is really not enough to portray the beautiful farm that you've got, as well as the grain foods production, which I was so impressed with all the machinery and the equipment and the different kinds of grain that you produce, barley, brown rice, corn, flax seeds, millet, oats, popcorn, quinoa, all of these nutritious grains to keep a population healthy. We end up with a lot of diversity there, too. Part of that business, we do a lot of specialty product, very high-end market specialty product manufacturing, and so a lot of these grains are required as ingredients in some of those products, so it's kind of hard to bring a new product into the system without having a number of different ways to market it, so we try to figure out as many different ways to market it to, to help make those inventories work. Well, Dave, I want to thank you very much for carving out time from your busy day today, and I want to let our listeners know that to learn more about your farm and purchase your excellent products, you can go to grainplacefoods.com. 
In closing, I want to thank my guest, Mr. David Vetter, for being with me. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios, beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Mr. Vetter, for all you've done for the land and future generations. Thanks for having me. Thank you.